Podcasting from the one and only planet Earth, it's I Heart This. In a world that seems determined to call out what's wrong, we remember what's right, what's beautiful, what's good. I'm Ben Lord. Let's talk about what we love. In February of this year, I took my kids to a trampoline park. It was a pretty good one. There was a dodgeball trampoline gym, a climbing wall, an obstacle course, and this cool trampoline wall thing where you could, like, hurl yourself at it and spring back out over a sea of other trampolines. But my favorites were the high-jump trampolines where you could bounce up and scramble onto these decks, set up at different heights, some of them as high as my head. I was doing some epic trampoline box jumps on one of the lower decks when something suddenly changed. Looking back, I'm not really sure how to describe it. There was this pain in my left buttock and hip like something inside had just twisted itself in a knot and a weird stiffness in my left leg. I took a little break and tried to walk it off. And After 10 or 15 minutes, I made a couple of half-hearted bounce attempts, but it was clear that somehow... Something was wrong. I love athletic stuff. The challenge of getting right up to the limits of what my body can do. So I've had my share of strained muscles, and usually after a few days of rest, I've found that the best thing to do is just keep moving. Gently, of course. Through the discomfort. But something was different this time. Over the next few days, the pain got worse. It spread down my leg. I stopped being able to exercise. I stopped being able to run. I couldn't bend to touch my toes. I couldn't sit in a chair. Then my foot went numb. By the time I got an appointment with an orthopedist, I could barely walk. It took a week to get that appointment, but when I finally got there, she diagnosed me in a matter of minutes. An L5-S1 radiculopathy, which in layman's terms means that I damaged the nerve that runs down the outside of my leg. An MRI would later confirm that the damage was caused when the cushiony disc in between two of my vertebrae broke and the jelly-like stuff inside squished out and clamped down on that nerve root. It's what people call a slipped disc. I have been lucky. I have seldom had debilitating pain, but what I experienced over the next month was some of the worst pain of my life. I went for over almost two weeks without sleeping. And one morning, my family found me hunched over the couch, weeping and unable to move. I almost never even take ibuprofen. But that month, I took the kind of pain meds that come with warnings about addiction. I know that pain can get a lot worse than what I felt, and that there are plenty of other people who live every day with pain that dwarfs what I experienced. But I must very humbly say that that pain totally kicked my ass. Pain is a weird thing. And the thing that most struck me about the pain that I was feeling wasn't what I expected. It was not just how hard it was to endure and how unstoppable it was and how it totally controlled my attention. What really struck me was how lonely it was. Even with a loving family there to support me every day, I was still utterly alone with that pain. 
Even friends who knew about my ordeal and asked how I was, they couldn't see it. They couldn't experience it. And even if they could, their pain wouldn't have been mine. Even now, five months into my recovery, my radiculopathy is painful every day. So needless to say, I've been thinking about pain a lot. And I wonder about how to live with it, how to be wise about it, if that's even possible. Is there some use for all of this pain? Or maybe, maybe use isn't the right way to say it. Maybe what I'm trying to ask is whether there are hidden gifts in this pain that might somehow make it mean something more than just suffering. Is there maybe even some reason to be thankful for it? And if there is, can I find it in myself to be grateful? I don't know the answers to these questions, but when you're the host of a podcast about unexpected gratitudes, it seems like it's at least worth a try. So today, we're putting pain itself on trial. It's crime, not just making life unbearable, not just harming the innocent without cause, but harm without meaning. Can pain itself be redeemed somehow for being the root of all human misery? Stay tuned. Part 2. Opening Statement for the Defense May it please the court, we're going to start this trial a bit unconventionally. We're going to start with opening arguments for the defense. So, gentlefolk of the jury, I offer you three compelling lines of reasoning that have given solace to the wretched for thousands of years. Exhibit A. On a physical level, pain keeps us from hurting ourselves more when we've already been injured. It slows us down. It forces us to be gentle and careful with ourselves. It insistently and unignorably elevates our own self-care as a priority. And for those of us who find it difficult to accept the care and help of others, pain gives us permission to let other people help us. Exhibit B. It could be that pain is the smithy that forges a more refined soul. Maybe pain makes us more empathetic, more compassionate. Maybe it makes us stronger. St. Paul writes in an oft-quoted verse in his letter to the Romans that we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Exhibit C, most convincingly, pain is a necessary antonym to pleasure, and that without suffering, we'd not be able to experience happiness. Indeed, without it, how would we even know what happiness was? The only fair verdict in this trial is not guilty. Part 3. Opening Statement for the Prosecution The prosecution would like to start by saying that I've turned to ideas like the ones the defense just brought up myself when trying to navigate the tangled labyrinth of my own pain. And at times they've offered real comfort, but here's the thing. As someone who's experiencing pain right now, 
I call bullshit. I am not thankful for my pain. I love the poetry of that St. Paul quote, but its logic escapes me. How exactly is my pain producing character? I can tell you for a fact that radiculopathy has not left me stronger, and I think it'd be insulting to suggest that this is true to someone suffering from MS or whose pain has been a contributing factor to addiction. Pain is not alchemy. That whole marine thing about pain is just weakness leaving the body, that's a lie. And the idea that suffering is necessary for happiness, that smells of bullshit too. There have been long periods of my life that were downright joyful, where I didn't have so much as a stubbed toe. As John Green, who often and insightfully writes about pain, puts it, the existence of broccoli does not in any way affect the taste of chocolate. Pain is not teaching you a lesson, nor do I believe that my pain is part of some scheme concocted by a cosmic intellect. As far as I can see, pain is just pain, and it sucks. Part 4. First Witness So in this backwards trial, the defense is going to go first here. And to start, I want to say that so much ink has been spilt on this topic that it's hard to tell where to start. So what? If you've listened even to one episode of the I Heart This podcast... You know what the deal is. We're supposed to take something underappreciated and reveal its underlying awesomeness. But I don't think I can do that here, at least not honestly. If this podcast is supposed to be a thank you note to the universe, then what is there to be thankful for with pain? I'm still not sure. And... When I'm not sure about something, I go to the library. It's a reflex. I just can't help it. And so for my first witness to this case, I'd like to call an expert whose testimony on pain and suffering fills shelf upon shelf at my local library, one that has offered counsel not just to me, but to millions of people worldwide, someone whose work is almost entirely concerned with pain and suffering. Your Honor, I'd like to call Buddhism to the stand. According to legend, Prince Siddhartha started down the path of Buddhism when he snuck out of the palace where his dad kept him sheltered from all pain and was horrified to find people growing old and getting hurt and getting sick and dying. And he spent the rest of his young life trying to find a way to get free of suffering. Obviously, I'm glossing over an entire world religion here, but the philosophy he came up with basically boils down to this. One, there's no escape. Life is full of suffering. And two, we suffer because we desire. We want some things and we want other things to go away. These seem like pretty rock-solid points to me. And Buddha's solution based on this? If you don't want to suffer, you have to stop desiring. If you can somehow stop wanting all the things then it won't bother you not to have them. If you can stop pushing all the pain away, then it just becomes another experience. Buddhism argues that pain and suffering are not the same thing, and that while pain is inevitable, suffering is not. 
that suffering is under our influence, that it is us who give the pain the power to really harm. And if that's true, then pain is not the criminal here. Your witness, prosecution. Your Honor, I agree with all this in principle, but I think we've got to be careful with the Instagram TLDR on Buddhism that the defense has just presented here. If, as the first noble truth proclaims, life really is shit, if the world really is an unavoidable pain fest, does that make the whole enterprise of I Heart This misguided? Is all of this gratitude really just toxic positivity, so much Pollyanna-ing, are we just painting the garbage with stars and unicorns? I reject that summarily. I reject the despair that goes with it. And is detachment from pain really something to be commended? Is it really the right way to go? I mean, imagine that you're walking along the road and you see a horrible car accident and you approach the scene and you come across the passengers and some are dying and some are horribly injured. What are you going to do? Smile beatifically down at them and think of how they wouldn't be suffering if they weren't clinging so strongly to life? No, of course not. It is right. It is human for our hearts to be involved, to be sad, to be afraid, to want to live, and to not want the sick and injured friends to die. I want to desire. I want to fall in love, even when it causes sleeplessness and loss of appetite and the endless, repetitive, nagging thought spiral of wondering whether she loves me back. And I wouldn't give that up even for a life of guaranteed happiness. Look, I'm not saying that pushing my pain away isn't causing me to suffer. I know it is. And I'm not arguing that I wouldn't be freer if I could loosen my grip on all of that, if I could just let my pain be. I know that that's true. But it is really, really hard to just sit with pain. And I'm not sure it's even always possible. Are you really suggesting that my suffering is my fault? That the blame lies with the victim? To be clear, I don't think this is what Buddhism suggests. But I think we've got to be careful bandying about memes that tell us suffering is optional. Suffering is not a character flaw. Part 5. Second Witness. Personal Experience. The greatest pain in my life wasn't physical. I guess for most people that is true. It happened when I was a senior in college on an internship at a wilderness survival school. That might sound like a strange college internship to you, and you'd definitely be right. But at the time, I wanted nothing more than to be someone who could live in the wilderness with nothing but my knife. The central irony here is that this quest led me to spend an entire semester about a thousand miles away from everyone I loved. No phones, no emails, not even regular mail delivery. And it was that loneliness that tore me to pieces. Sure, there were complicating factors. 
the guy I worked for was passive aggressive and he and his wife were involved in some kind of weird cult thing and and I cut my finger down to the tendon while I was trying to shape a stone arrowhead. <laughs> Good times. But the thing that undid me wasn't any of that. It was the utter isolation I felt. That fall, I could feel my whole identity unraveling. I became so afraid of losing myself that I developed these completely irrational fears. Most of them about losing control of who I was. I was afraid of losing control of my appetites and developing an eating disorder. I was afraid of wetting the bed. Neither of these things happened, mind you. But I was so afraid of not being able to relax enough to fall asleep that night after night I lay there not falling asleep because I was so afraid that I wouldn't. When I finally cut my finger in that flint napping accident, it was during a class that we were teaching to about a dozen participants, and I ran off clutching my fingers trying to hold the separated skin together. One of the students was a nurse who followed me up to the barn. She inspected my wound, and she bandaged it, and she asked me how I was doing. And for weeks, I had been pretending to everyone around me that everything was fine, I was trying to be professional. I was just trying to hold myself together to keep from exploding into dust. And when she asked that question, I couldn't pretend anymore. I wept. I sobbed. I melted into a puddle of tears and snot. And this woman, she put her arm around me and just let me cry. I have no idea now who that woman was. I can't remember her name. I wish that I could somehow reach out to her and tell her that she saved my life that day. I'll tell you one thing about that pain. It made me feel very, very humble. And when I finally arrived home and felt the presence of my family and Laura and my friends, I was so aware of how much I needed them, how I could not survive without them. That's the biggest survival lesson that I got. I'll tell you another thing. Those wounds didn't go away just because I returned from the wild. Not my hand and not my heart either. I wrestled with irrational anxieties for most of the next decade, but they ended as abruptly as they came. Funnily enough, it was on another survival adventure a walkabout in southern Utah, the kind of trip that I've dreamed about for my entire life. Laura was pregnant with our first child, and I knew that if I was ever going to go on such a trip, it would have to be then. And it really was one of the most transformative experiences that I've ever had. Unlike the experience that left me so scarred in college, I didn't undertake this adventure alone. And also unlike that experience, which mostly had taken place on a mountaintop farm, this was a much more authentic experience of trying to live on the land. I shivered in bivvies of pine needles, and I went days without food. I got altitude sickness and hyponatremia, and I learned a lot about staying warm and dry, about field dressing an animal, about starting fires without matches, and navigating by landmarks and compass bearings. 
but I also learned about navigating the wilderness inside of me. It was the terrain, it turns out, that I most needed to explore. One day, having already walked some ten miles on only a handful of food and still miles to go before my destination, I had this thought that has echoed in my heart ever since. My pack was light, but my load was still heavy because I carried my hunger and my thirst. And they really did feel like physical weights strapped to my body. I could feel them weighing me down, and I thought, that's okay. I know what to do here. I know I can endure these things. I did it yesterday. I just need to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And the realization that I could carry these discomforts, that I was strong enough to bear them, struck me almost physically, and I remember saying out loud to myself, hunger is just hunger. Thirst is just thirst. And they stopped being these abstract boogeymen. I could handle them. And then this feeling of heat washed over me as I realized that it was the same with all those irrational fears that I'd been carrying too. Fear was just fear. I couldn't make the fear go away any more than I could make the hunger or the thirst go away, but I could carry it. I was strong enough to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I could carry that fear all the way across the desert. A Buddhist might call this radical acceptance. When I returned home from that trip, a funny thing happened. My fears didn't go away, but they'd become ghosts. They still haunted me, but somehow now I knew they were insubstantial and so many of the other big problems that I had left in my normal life now seemed imaginary. In comparison to the difficulties of not eating and not drinking and not sleeping, every day, everything else was easy. I wasn't going to die. I had all the water I could drink. I could sleep warm even in the depths of winter. I think that this is all I know about pain. It is just pain. It can be carried, even if you can't make it go away. And for that, I am grateful. Part 6. Third Witness, a television sitcom. Michael Shore's the Good Place was an NBC sitcom about moral philosophy. I've talked about it before in another episode of this podcast. It was the story of some hapless souls trying to navigate their way through a confounding afterlife. And in the climactic fourth season, after breaking out of hell and reforming the procedure for final judgment, the characters finally find themselves in the actual good place. The heavenly abode of souls that have lived a moral life only to find that the place is infected with a crippling ennui. In the end, a life, or an afterlife, of perfection turns out to be a tragedy. Without pain, without death, without the imminence of loss, the residents of the good place are unable to truly appreciate the good place they are in. A life of perfection, a perfect life, at least according to the writers of this series, would be empty of the meaning that would make all those good things matter. Some Buddhist traditions 
also have their heavens and hells. I've seen diagrams lavishly illustrating all the planes of existence in Buddhist cosmology. But amid all of these worlds, the teachers say, it is only this one where liberation can be achieved. Too much suffering, it seems, and we cannot attend to anything but our pain. Too little, and we have no reason to attend to it at all. In the Good Place sitcom, the characters create a solution that gave the final episode of this mostly comedic show surprising and beautiful emotional and thematic weight. They decide to install a door in heaven. Any soul who walks through that door would cease to be, would end their afterlife. They could, consciously and peacefully, end their existence for good. And with this reintroduction of loss, the afterlife became meaningful again. The darkness between the stars is what makes them so precious. It may be true that broccoli does not affect the flavor of chocolate, but if we can eat chocolate all the time without any greens in sight, we cease to take delight. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be in pain. If I could make this pain in my body go away right now, I would. But I would not trade that for a life where the miraculous workings of my body ceased to bring me joy. Perhaps suffering can be redeemed, if only because it awakens us to the preciousness of what we have. Closing Arguments I once had the privilege of attending a talk given by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese peace activist and Buddhist monk who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King Jr. himself. The talk was given in a giant sports arena, a place usually housing thousands of roaring and screaming fans. But on the day I was there, the arena, though full, was almost silent. I remember being charmed by Nathan's genuineness, his unassuming charisma, his gentleness. His speech was slow and deliberate, but not self-conscious. I remember little of what he actually said, save this. He said, a non-toothache is very pleasant. And therein lies the catch, doesn't it? Most of us are afflicted with non-toothaches all the time. But how often does the pleasure of those non-toothaches strike us? I think that maybe, maybe the problem is not with the pain itself. Maybe the problem is how the pain interacts with the joy. Just like the desert survival trip through the ease and comfort of my non-desert life into delicious relief, a toothache, once healed and treated, can make us so grateful, so, so grateful for the teeth that don't hurt. Or alternatively, the pain can be so great, so distracting, like it was that day when my family found me hunched over the couch, that we can't appreciate the non-toothache at all, because the pain crowds everything out. I'm not sure how a person goes about using this insight. We don't get to pick the pains that we feel. Almost always death and loss and grief and debilitating pain catch us by surprise. What can we do but try to endure, to put one foot in front of the other and carry what loads we can? But perhaps 
We can hold this idea. Perhaps I can hold this idea through the smaller pains. Perhaps I can use the pains that I can manage, like the frame of a picture, something to contain the beauty, to point it out, to bring to mind all of the non-toothaches that I have. Tiknatan writes, life is full of suffering, but it is also full of wonderful things, like the blue sky, the sunshine, the eyes of a baby. Life is full of suffering, but suffering is not enough. Deliberation. In the end, I don't think that I can find the defendant not guilty. I am not thankful for pain, but I am thankful for the light it casts on the other treasures of my life. I am thankful for the things that make my suffering bearable. I'm thankful for the strength I have to bear it. I am thankful for relief when it comes. And when the pain isn't too loud, I'm thankful for the ways that it wakes me up to the joys that I've slumbered through. Pain and suffering may be the frame of the picture, and I don't love the frame, but I love the picture. Jack Gilbert says, Sorrow everywhere. Slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together. Between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. Sentencing. You don't get to choose if you get hurt. You will. No one escapes this life without a broken heart. If I could design the universe differently without robbing it of its meaning, I would. But maybe there is no other way. Winter enlivens the spring. Want enlivens plenty. Someday, I will lose my mom and dad. Someday, I will lose my wife, or she will lose me. Maybe the only way to love is with a broken heart, or at least a breakable one. But I still choose it. I will choose it a thousand, thousand times. The defendant is guilty. The sentence is nothing. Let her go free. I Heart This is written, edited, and produced by me, Ben Lord. You can find more things to love at our website, iheartthispodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Be kind, be curious, be thankful.